welcome to the All It Takes is a Goal podcast, the best place in the entire world, including all of Canada, to learn how to build new thoughts, new actions, and new results. I'm your host, John Acuff, and today I'm joined by David McRaney. Who's that? I'm so glad you asked. David McRaney is the author of How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. He's an author, journalist, lecturer, and the creator of the blog, You Are Not So Smart, which has become a massive book as well, later followed by the book, You Are Now Less Dumb. David currently hosts the popular You Are Not So Smart podcast and speaks internationally about irrational thinking and delusion. Before finding internet fame, David graduated with a degree in journalism from the University of Southern Mississippi and cut his teeth covering Hurricane Katrina on the Gulf Coast and in the Pine Belt region of the Deep South. He's been a beat reporter, an editor, a photographer, a voiceover artist, a television host, a digital content manager, and he also owned um, two pet stores. We talk about that um, in the episode. He's done everything. Um, This episode was so fascinating to me because we talk a lot about his process as a writer, a lot about um, how the brain works. The book um, really digs into science, and there's so many fascinating things in this interview. I think you're going to absolutely love it. We even get into... What do you do when you have a relative who has a different opinion than you? Like I asked him flat out because it's about persuasion. It's about why do we argue with people? The book's called How Minds Change. And so I said to him, okay, let's say you have an uncle who's a flat earther. It's going to be Thanksgiving. Your mom doesn't want you to fight with that uncle. What do you do? How do you have better conversations with people who disagree with you? Which I, I feel like... The entire internet needs to listen to his answer because it's really, really helpful. The conversation is really fun. We talk about this car crash he got when he when he was eighteen and how that changed his life and how it introduced whimsy in an unexpected way. It's a really fun conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. But first, let's hear a quick message about the sponsor of today's episode. Today's sponsor is me. I've been really surprised at how many people who listen to this podcast have reached out to me about having me speak at their events. I love that. And here's why. Over the last 13 years, I've had the honor to help hundreds of companies like Nissan, Walmart, Microsoft, and Comedy Central at events around the world. And during that time, I've developed three big goals for your event. Number one, I want to slingshot your audience into the best year they've ever had. Whether I'm opening, closing, or somewhere in the middle of the event, I want to launch everyone out of that room with actionable, memorable things that they can apply to their work and lives immediately. Number two, my second goal, I want the sound team engaged and laughing. The sound team has heard it all. They have. And if I can make them laugh and learn along the way, the audience is going to absolutely love the keynote. And number three, my third goal, I want you to get text messages during the keynote. My favorite sentence to hear from you after I speak is, John, my phone was blowing up during your keynote. I'm there to make you look like a rock star, not me. If your boss texts you during my speech and compliments you on how well the event is going, then I know I've done my job. Whether it's virtual or live, 10,000 people in an arena or 15 sales team members on WebEx or Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams, I'd love to help you with your next event. Fill out the quick form at acuff.me slash speaking to check my availability. That's acuff, A-C-U-F-F dot M-E slash speaking. All right, let's jump into the interview with David McRaney. 
David, thank you so much for joining me um, on my podcast. I'm really excited. Your book just came out and it's already a editor's top pick on Amazon for best books of 2022. Congratulations. That's really exciting. Thank you so much. Yeah, at the time of this recording, it came out yesterday. So I'm, I'm in that state that is very rare in life. The day after a very big project that took years, yeah. and you, the dust is settling around you and you're like, huh, well, I did a thing. It's there. It's like, it's, it's there. It's physical. It's an object. It's what do I yeah, do? How does that feel? <laughs> do those I, days feel good to you? Do they feel squirrely to you? Do they feel? It can be squirrely. Oh, oh. It can yeah. be squirrely. I'm familiar with it. Uh, uh, like like yourself, a lot of big. I know. I feel. I know that to expect that feeling after a big project, where you sometimes have the emotional state that that nobody ta- talks about, or that we very rarely talk about. Them. You have to be with somebody else who does books and stuff before you feel safe to say out loud. But I'm okay. Second here, which is there's a little bit of like. Like I, I hate to use the, to borrow this term, but it, it's like they oftentimes they describe it in psychology as a t- similar to a postpartum thing where you you just feel, oh, I should be happier than I am, or I should be more excited yeah. than I am. But you're there's two things that will happen. One is you still have to do your laundry even though you did it right. You still have to be just it's just another day in your life, which feels strange. Like you thought you were going to get a ticker tape parade or something. And uh, the other thing is you're all the momentum and all the work and the and the anticipation the expectation and the cycles that were running in your head you're free of them for a while and you expected to 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 like binge netflix or lay down but you feel like you want to do a thing again and you don't have it anymore and it's strange you you since it's such a new experience you have to acclimate to it it's it's something else yeah i i remember my first book when it released i and i had a corporate job so i was driving home from the corporate job and I looked around on the highway and I was like, none of these people's lives look different. Like I thought the crust <laughs> of the earth was going to open up. Like I did a book and it was my first book. And I, I had a lot of expectations that, that some would say maybe were exaggerated for what would happen on release day. Um, but yeah, it's an odd, it's an odd feeling. It's exciting feeling. Um, but super excited for you. One of the things you mentioned in your book that I wanted to jump right into was you say that you're a science fiction nerd. Yeah. So I'm curious What's on your Mount Rushmore of science fiction books? Like the oh. four books that you're like, these are the ones. Uh, Hyperion's number one for me, uh, partially because it was, I grew up in, in rural South Mississippi, but I had, uh, you know, a, one of the, my uh, algebra teacher was from somewhere else and recognized this, like we were watching, like I was talking about Star Trek Next Generation and stuff. And he was like, oh, I've got a book for you. And he gave me this book, Hyperion by Dan Simmons. It's a, uh, uh, it's it's been one of those things that might be a movie one day. It's it's very high minded, super Dune like book, uh, and I had never confronted any of these ideas before in my entire life. And it was one of those things like, oh, there are other ways of being a person. There are other things out there. So I always go back to that one. Um, I really enjoy that book. I don't, uh, and also, I remember when I first read it, I wrote in the on the in the side front flap every word that i'd never seen before and eventually it filled it up and then it filled up the back and it was all these vocabulary terms that i'd never seen before oh, and, i love that and it, it was it was really did it really sparked something and it was great uh i love that i also love uh rendezvous with rama which is going to be a movie soon uh uh i love uh dune of course you always have to say dune yeah. um i love those and then the the all the uh the sort of lesser known, uh, I inherited a, a, a bookcase from my dad in our house. He had a liquor, old liquor cabinet that was just full of all the pulp science fiction stuff. It's like a, a tiger man shooting at something with like a scanty clad woman, like all those crappy 
pulp things. But there was a uh, there's a lot of the lesser known like Isaac Asimov's and, and Heinlein and all that stuff were in there. So they all kind of mushed together in my mind as this foundational space of sci-fi stuff that that I was too young to be reading. And then Hyperion was handed over to me and I was like, oh, there's good sci-fi too. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> there's an art form to this. It's not just a genre. It's It's interesting that you made that list of those words. Were you always a curious kid like that because there's not a million 13 year olds that would go wow i don't know that word i don't know the word and then do the work of creating the list like that's a really interesting approach to vocabulary were you were you always like that is it something you developed over time no that was i mean that's that was yeah i was the only child uh with two parents who worked and i was in the woods in the middle of the and and i got to basically do the leaves of grass like i've already been a hermit like i spent I, I started life as a hermit <laughs> that's funny you don't have to leave your current life to go <laughs> learn what the monks are trying to teach us yeah yeah i had, I had a very hermited at a hermitage childhood and uh i it was split between running around the woods with a dog and making nunchucks out of uh, sticks and stuff and then and then i had uh my dad was was it was great of him he, he had a subscription to omni and popular mechanics and uh I had those. My mom was a voracious uh, um, romance novel reader. She she would go to the thrift store or no, the, uh, the used bookstore and get mm -hmm. twenty five. She'd hand twenty five over and get ten back, and they, she did that con consistently. And so I would peek in those, and then uh, my dad's old sci fi collection. So words right as the internet just started to appear right before all we all had that that was my escape out of that rural world and, and knowing that there were others and other things and i i've always been sort of a systems breakdown or how do people work thing trying to understand what it means to be a person and vocabulary I, i'm still to this day my big one of my greatest passions is trying to think about is articulating the ineffable is something that that fascinates me when we um I remember reading philosophy texts where they wouldn't have a word for something. They just make up a word for it. They're like, like, you know, uh, angst and ennui and stuff like that. And they're like, we need, even if a word existed, they needed a term. They would create terminology, but it would take a very big idea and shrink it down into a little block. And then you could take that block and build a bigger idea out of it. And then you could shrink mm -hmm. that big idea down to a block. And now you're building all these layers of abstraction that make sense of the world just through articulation, articulation, like, vocabulary and language can lead to articulating things that we didn't have the ability to do before. And now we can trade ideas back and forth in a way that we can have bigger ideas that emerge always has fascinated me. And I've always tried to disassemble it even as a child and some kids, I guess, disassemble radios. That was what I was doing as a kid and I'm still doing it right now. Yeah. And it really comes through in your work. Um, there's this really sincere curiosity that I think you can feel on the page. You can feel um, when you do audio. That was one of the things that I was curious about. You wrote, produced, recorded a six-hour audio documentary <laughs> exploring the idea and the word genius. And mm -hmm. it's it's so good. It's oh, you so, heard it. Oh, wow. So good. I listened to the first section just the other day. And it opens up with just the most fascinating interview with a four-year-old who has an IQ of 155. Yeah. And you're funny and personable. Like when she says, she says she introduces you to chickens and you're like, and she does a chicken noise and you're like, that's a pretty good chicken. Like there's humor throughout it. So that's how sticker, did you, that's the sticker she gave me. There you go. There you go. How did you pick that? Like, how did you go? Okay. I'm going to disassemble this genius. And I'm going to do, cause it's so layered. It's so layered. 
What made you go off that particular trail? I was working on how minds change for a long time. And I'm, of course, I make the, a podcast every two weeks. And I've always get, always get a chance to spend time with experts and read all these papers and everything. And I, in the middle of working on this big project, I came across this uh, piece of research that showed well, I, I that, uh, first of all, all the new, all the no, the Nobel Prize winners mostly, you know, have average IQs, which that was the first thing that excited me. And then I found this thing called Terman's Termite Study, which is one of the longest running studies in psychology, where they took all of these uh, really young kids in California who had a, above average IQs, and they studied them their entire lives. And um, n- they all, some were, some were successful. They, you know, most of them were successful in the, because they just came from demographics that tend to have advantages mm-hmm. uh but none of them did anything as the author i'm using their words of note nothing that, that <laughs> nothing that, that would get them considered to be considered a genius throughout yeah. history but two of the kids in the study did they were but they were the two of the kids that were excluded for not having above average iqs they went on to win the nobel prize in physics separately for two, two separate things not, not working wow. together and i that wouldn't leave me like no matter what I was working on that would keep popping up. And one of the things that drives my work is if an idea insists upon itself, if it just keeps coming back, if I keep telling people about it, I'm like, so good. (laughs) That's something, dude. If an idea insists upon itself. Yeah. uh, That's that's most everything I've done. That's ever been worth anything to anybody has been something like that, where either I looked something up and I was like, what? And I wanted to tell people about it, or it was something that just kept coming back. And I, I was like, I want to know more about this. And the thing that I, what happens is it starts blossoming into new questions the more you think about it. That was what was happening with me. And it came back to this articulation thing. I was wondering, you keep, people say Elon Musk is a genius or Steve Jobs was a genius. And I'm like, you mean like Michelangelo? (laughs) You mean like, like, what do you mean by the word genius? And then I I felt like it wasn't a well-defined term. And then when I I picked up a history uh, a text about the um, the word itself and uh, found that is de- the definition of the term has changed with culture. And then I started uh, I found this that the origin of the term came from um, the the Romans had this uh, somewhat religious spiritual concept of the genius it comes from the the world of the genii and it's an entity it's like a, a a spirit figure that pulls you out of the world of the ether into the world of mortals and it's whatever it gives you whatever talents or whatever is unique about you just your personality that was what they called your genius the thing that was bestowed upon you at your birth and here's the thing that maybe go okay i'm going to do this as a project every year they had a ritual that where they thanked the genii for bringing them into the world. And in that ritual, you would burn a little cake and sing a hymn. And that's the origin of the birthday party. So, (laughs) so, so I, it occurred to me that we each are born with our own particular genius. And I had interviewed Scott Barry Kaufman about the fact that he, um, he's one of the world's leading intelligence researchers but he was considered below average intelligence. He scored low on an IQ test and had to go through school with a lot of disadvantages, but but he had a hearing disorder and that's why he got scored low. Mm -hmm. And um, he had to fight to get into the world he was in so that he could manifest his genius and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, there's so much stuff in here. So Mm -hmm. 
I just turned in the manuscript and I should have rested and said, done something, should have gone on vacation, anything. But instead, I just immediately sent out a bunch of emails to people uh, who were intelligence researchers. And then I emailed Mensa and said, could you put me in touch with a bunch of high IQ people? And they said, just come on out. So it was the first journalist that was, that was uh, got to go to uh, Mensa headquarters and spent all day with them. And they put me in touch with Juliet. And I just couldn't. I didn't know whether I was going to put everything in the story, but she, when I walked in the door of their house, uh, I flew out to, to their house in California. They said, um, that her parents were like, Hey, how you doing? This is Juliet. And they just left. And I spent all day with this. Uh, she had just turned five, like a couple of days earlier. Yeah. It was one of the best days of my life all day long with just in her world and marveling at her fascination and doing math puzzles and playing with her chickens and all this stuff. And I was off and that, uh, that became a beautiful project. That'll be my next book for sure. Uh, I was going to say, definitely. Yeah. I love that project so much. And it, it's a, a testament to like my own arc of like moving more and more into a, I want to do more and more science journalism that has that on the ground storytelling mm -hmm. feel to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, I thought it was just brilliant. It's so good. Um, we'll make sure to link to your website uh, where, where folks can listen to that. So it, the word arcs interesting because you've had an interesting career arc. Um, I've had a, I kind of have a weird shaped job, like where, <laughs> you know, like if you tell people what, you, like, I mm -hmm. have a neighbor who regularly says to me, I still don't know exactly what you do. Like, and then I, and I'll give it a label and be like, I'm an author, I'm a speaker. Um, you've had an interesting career arc too, from journalist to, um, voice actor, you've written a million <laughs> different things. Walk us through kind of the progression of, you're at the University of Southern Mississippi. Mm -hmm. um, you're studying, you're majoring in journalism. You're going to be a reporter. You're, you're editing or you're, you're in charge of the Facebook comments um, for, the, for the news <laughs> channel at some point. And, yeah, you, yeah. and you get threats. You know, there's a lot there. How do you start making the steps to what you're doing now? Or I guess the first question, what, how would you describe what your job or career is now? It's, it's just like you. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to elevator pitch it. Uh, I... If I put it on a CV, I say I'm a science journalist. Uh, sometimes I say I'm a writer, an author, a speaker, all that stuff mm -hmm. people say. What I think of myself is I have very fortunately have worked my way into a world where when I get obsessed with something and I feel a passion for it, I will pursue it and then tell you whatever I learned. That's what, mm -hmm. I, that's what I do. That's, that's yeah. pretty simple. And the things that I'm interested in are in this domain of brains and, and minds, culture. So that's the sort of content that I put out. And I, I'm you know, agnostic about where the, where it comes out. Is it going to, it could be audio, it could be video, it could be book text. I'm just trying, I'm just like, I am a, a serially obsessed autodidact <laughs> as I say. And, and I want to tell you about this stuff. It's, it gives me joy. I can't get enough of it. And I want to uh, un, unfurl it because I'm trying to understand me and what it means to be a stumbling, fumbling human and mm -hmm. this, this rock thing floating through space. And the way I connect to it is, is, by doing this and then sharing it and getting feedback and then moving forward with it. So that's what I say I do. I, I, but my journey to get to do that for a living was just all over the place. I, before I went to school for, to university, I went there late. I was started, I went to college at 27. I was, um, I went right after high school, but then it was like, nah, I want to do other stuff. And that's because I got into a car wreck and uh, shattered my spine. I couldn't walk. I had to learn to be, learn how to walk, all that stuff. Uh, I, How long was that process? It was about a year. Uh, okay. uh, I missed a, 
my entire senior year of uh, high school, I, I had to be homeschooled or I had teacher, I had a, one teacher would come to the house and, uh, and give me all my stuff. And, um, how did that impact how you, how you look at science, how you look at your life, how you look at deconstructing or rebuilding? I, um, I, I, I think I developed a whimsy from it. Uh, I, it like you, once you've gone all to some, into something like that and come out of it, you, you, the joys are more joyous and the, mm-hmm. the things that are weird about life, I can usually laugh at myself <laughs> in, in a way that I got from that. I was, I think I was on the path to being a, a dark triad kind of dude. And, mm-hmm. and that just knocked that out forever. And I'm just grateful to have anything at all. Uh, mm-hmm. and I, I, used, I used to work, I remember I used to work construction and sell leather coats and all sorts of, uh, really hard labor, blue collar stuff. And, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, after, uh, I, I, I took the money from the, from the car wreck and I used it to buy a pet store cause I used to work on my grandparents' farm as a kid. <laughs> none, none of the, when I asked this question, I was hoping there'd be a little, uh, like a handful of interesting things, but they, it's true. like, uh, it's like, true. Yeah. Like I, I said, Searly, a pet store Searly, is not, <laughs> Searly obsessed. Thought it that. I, I took the money for that. I bought a pet store cause I used yeah. to work at my grandparents' farm in the, in the summers and I loved animals and I was like, Oh, this will be something. But it turns out if you love animals, I'm sure there are pet store owners who are, are great and they take care of everything mm-hmm. i didn't feel like i was uh my joy i feel like it wasn't the right job for the kind of way i felt about animals so yeah i did that for a while but it was the pet store was did so well i i, I bought a sec i opened a second one in a, in a city two hours away and had both going for a while but at some point i just was done and i sold the whole business and just and decided to go to, to school for something and the um I went to school to be a psychologist. I got all the way to the end of the program to for the bachelor's degree, and there was a sign on the uh, just stuck up somewhere on campus that said "opinionated," like in big Helvetica with a question mark, and then underneath it said "come right from the school newspaper." And I was like, "Really? That's a thing?" And uh, I went into the school newspaper's office and I said, "How do you do this?" And somebody in there was like, "Just email us." I was like, "Oh, cool." So I uh, and this is how this is how it starts. Uh, and I'm going to answer the first part of your question at the end of this, cause it's all pertinent, which is I, um, had in one of my psychology classes, uh, they, I, I had, there was this study that made me laugh, which was, and I'm sure by now it's been replicated or not replicated. I don't know how, uh, I haven't looked back on it in a while, but, um, when, when people, when your favorite sports team loses, they said that, uh, the study had showed that, uh, uh, men's sperm counts would go down. And I, at our campus that year, every single football game that our, our team had played they had lost and it i thought of a of a fun headline which was uh uh so, uh, uh, uh the university's sperm counts reaches reaches record low according to scientists <laughs> which of course when you read it it's, it's it's like it suggests that must be true if this is true yeah and but i thought it would be a great headline and i wrote that they put they printed it and then in one of my classes the professor said have you seen this this is funny and that was it. I was like, oh, man, that feels good. And, yeah, yeah. and I, I switched my major, I immediately took an internship at a small newspaper. And then when I graduated, I went to start working in newspapers and went from that to uh, TV journalism, where I did the web side of things for a while, but I would go in front of the camera every once in a while. And you talk about the car wreck, the long answer to that to title together is I would, 
when I would be in those white collar cubicle world and people would complain about stuff, I would, I would feel like we're so it's, can you believe what I used to dig ditches? This is, this yeah. is incredible. <laughs> and so yeah, they, were, they have the air conditioner on. Can you imagine <laughs> all this air? <laughs> my taller, my frustration tolerance was pretty high, Yeah, but it was, it was there in the TV world doing web stuff. I didn't get to write anymore and I really missed it. And I just so happened to be, uh, it was the, I was like, let's, I wanted to, they're all, it was the time when blogs had become, were really popular in a way they're not today. That there were all these individual idea blogs, like look, uh, shit my dad says and awkward family photos, just one little thin, teeny concept because yep. you could just make one time, one kind of content. And I thought, I remember the person swap experiment and, uh, it was Darren Brown had done it, had recreated it for one of his specials where you ask somebody for directions on a college campus. And then two people walk between you and the person who's giving you the directions. And they're usually holding something big, like a, a door or a portrait. And then one of them switches places with the person who was just, who was asking for the directions. And the person giving directions doesn't notice that the person's changed. And they would change like height, the gen- just everything. They would change everything about the person's appearance. The person still wouldn't notice. The actual research shows about 50% of the time that happens. I thought, oh, that would be a cool blog where I bet all the stuff that we think we see the world one-to-one, but whether it's facts or beliefs or perceptions, um, these, the assumption is the, the certainty we have that, that we see the world as it is, not as we perceive it. And, um, that was excited me. And so I was like, that'd be a cool one idea blog, but it didn't, it became lots of ideas. And I wrote a little post on that blog about brand loyalty that went viral. Thanks to somebody stealing an iPhone over at Gizmodo and they republished it. Uh, they asked if they could republish it because I think they were just trying to keep the hits going, the momentum going. Mm-hmm. And that went so viral that the publishing world came along. My great, my fantastic agent, still my agent, Erin Malone, she emailed and, and she had worked on Freakonomics and she just extended her hand and said, would you like to join us here in the book world? I was like, yes, I would very much. And, <laughs> and, and I wrote the book and the book did really well. Bestseller, all these different languages. They gave me a sequel, the I wrote a sequel and uh, it's called You Are Now Less Dumb, which I think is funny. Uh, nobody else liked the title would be. And uh, and I wanted to promote that. And I was like, oh, bl- these podcast things are a new thing. So for a second time, I was in the right place at the right time. I was like, I'll do it like a podcast to promote the book. And I've been doing that podcast for 12 years now because it's the centerpiece. Which is 100 years in podcast terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's not a small statement. And that led to everything else because that's, that's, the, that's the center of my solar system everything revolves around it it's a place where i i have ideas about things i have obsessions i have concepts i want to talk about a book mm-hmm. i read i want to get the author on i do the pod, do podcasts and sometimes those things develop into bigger and bigger ideas which is where how minds change came from I was working on a series of shows about all sorts of stuff and i think what's interesting about the book um is that it starts with you kind of admitting some cynicism and then mm. discovering hope so walk us through that, you know, that kind of transformation for you that happens in how minds change. This, thank you. Uh, that is a great question. I, I've wanted to talk about this so much. Um, I, because I have You Are Not So Smart and because I've done so many episodes about it and all these and have books about it and I was doing lectures about it. Um, it was very easy to have cynicism when you, when you write a bunch about motivated reasoning. Um, and, you know, motivated reasoning, if anyone who's not familiar with the term, you know, if you want a piece of chocolate cake, you will find a reason to eat the chocolate cake. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll say, I've, I've, I'll exercise tomorrow, whatever. Like, yeah. you know, you'll find a reason to do it. 
It's just, well, is it a fancy justification? Yeah, just, it, well, motivated cognition includes all those things. So motivated reasoning, justification, explanation, yeah. rationalization. And uh, some of my favorite studies are in that domain where like you, you have somebody flip a coin and, or you, you tell them they flipped a coin and they've either won $200 or they've lost $100. And you say, you have uh, the option to flip again. So if it comes up heads, you lose two, you gain 200, comes up tails, you lose 100. And then they tell you what you flipped and they ask you, would you like to flip again? And no matter which way it goes, everyone chooses to flip again, but they'll rationalize it differently or justify it differently. Some, if it's in their, if they got some money, they'll say, I'm ahead so I can risk it. And if they're down money, they'll say, well, I need to win back the money that I just lost. But either way, they choose to do it again. They come up with a justification. But what I love about that study is if you do not tell people the outcome of the flip, nobody chooses to flip again. So we only make decisions that we can justify. And that's what that research suggests. And we tend to only make the decisions that are easiest to justify, not the ones that are quote unquote best. I love that stuff. And I uh, was talking about that in terms of like when people would ask me questions about, well, I have a family member who thinks this or whatever. I'm like, well, they're telling you that, but that's a justification for something deeper. And then I remember very plainly, I was doing a Q&A and someone was telling me about how they had a family member who believed in the reptilian stuff. And they were like, how do I get them out of this thing? How do I convince them that that's not true? And I just told them, you can't. And yeah. it was like locking your keys in your car. I was like, uh, uh, oh, wait, I don't know if I actually believe what I just said out loud. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to believe what I just said out loud. Yeah. Or That people can't change. That minds can't change. Yeah. I'm dead. Like, I don't know. I guess I've had a bucket list mentality mm-hmm. from 18 on, which is, a, um, I never really have thought about that till just now. But that's part of who I am for sure. Yeah, I mean, because you there's a couple things you say, and ca- maybe not casually, but you say them because they're part of your story, and they feel natural and normal to you because they're part of your story. But I liked animals, so I bought a pet store. Like, that's not a <laughs> wow, sentence. Really human, about that. It's not a wow. sentence humans say. And then you're like, and I I didn't love it, but I was still good at it, so I franchised in essence and had a second pet store. Like that's a that's an hmm. unusual big thing that the average person doesn't just go. I really liked, um, you know, cricket. So I started the Nashville cricket league and <laughs> I, I built a pitch, you know, and like, those are, those are interesting, unique things and they're complete changes of career. Um, so if somebody was listening to this and they were saying, okay, I've got a passion I'm curious about, I want to explore it to the level you explore stuff. What would be the first step? Like, or what would be a kind of dip my toe in the water into the world of, I'm going to see how far I can pull this thread. Um. I've tried a couple of different ways of doing this, but the thing that always works for me is I email someone who seems like they know what they're doing or they're in that world already and say, can we hang out for a minute? And I can ask you a bunch of questions. Mm -hmm. And I have like an 85% success rate before I had anything that they might could Google and go, okay, I'll talk to this guy. Uh, People are eager to just to share their worlds with you. They're they're eager to share their, their, their passions and where they're at. And I, uh, Anything I've ever thought that I might get into, I'd find somebody who's doing it. With the pet store stuff, that's exactly what I did. I found somebody who had one, and I was like, I was like, walked in, talked to him about it. I was like, hey, can we like meet and talk about this? Uh, um, everything I've leapt into, I've tried to, to talk to people who are already there and get an idea of, of what their life is like. And sometimes they're like, don't do this. But I'll think, I'll think, well, this is because the way they're doing it is not the way I would do it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes their advice of don't do this, I'm like, okay, well, I won't do that. That seems like a bad idea. Like, you know, I haven't ever met a lawyer that said, yeah, you should be a lawyer. 
it's a, a funny sentence too. That's a funny, yeah. Collect career advice and and try to see if it's consistent. But you know, and, and remember your values. Like you, you know, can you can't take you take the advice in the way that you see. Where does my Venn diagram overlap with this person? What there would I feel this way in the experiences that they've had? And then ask that person, can, where would you suggest I go for more stuff? And that's the person who will tell you the books to get. That's the person that will tell you the thing you should watch or the, per, or the other person you should talk to. So that's usually how I do my first bit of research. And that is still how I do books and podcasts and everything else. Mm-hmm. I come in and ask somebody who knows what they're doing and an expert to connect me to the other people in that world and then wade into it and let it tell me what it is. Like, it's impossible not to have some biases and preconceived notions, but you're going go in trying to, bu- like, you don't necessarily have to even say, I'm going to bust all this or create some null hypotheses or whatever. Mm. Let the idea emerge. Let it sh- reveal itself. Because it, it will. You have enough conversations and it will reveal itself to you. And that's usually the way I go with it. What's your idea kind of curation process like? Are you a notebook guy and you're like, I've always got a notebook with me. I'm an audio text guy and I text myself these. Like, when you think about, because you're talking about thousands and thousands of ideas. There's thousands and thousands of ideas that are in How Minds Change. There's thousands of ideas mm-hmm. that are in You Are Now Less Dumb, which I think is a funny title. I, I think that's funny too. Thank I've, thank there's been a time or two I've titled, I've been the mm-hmm. one person that liked the title of my book and yeah. I was like, oh, I shouldn't have fought that hard for that one date. Turns out they were right. Um, that was a difficult title. Um, but I really like that one. And you can buy happiness and you have too many friends on Facebook. Like your subtitles are really great too because they're very, they're very sticky. Um, but how do you, yeah, how do you, Collect ideas, curate ideas, store ideas, roll uh, like around any other, them. Thank you. Like any other writer, I've tried everything you can imagine. Um, I I have hundreds of little notebooks, uh, but that's these are not useful. Uh, I don't recommend doing this because I just I write stuff in them, and I lose them, and I fill them up. Uh, I try to have one central notebook that always is with me, yep. but um, I don't necessarily keep it in my pocket. I keep it like in a backpack. Uh, that's not the, my method. That is a some sort of anxiety reducing thing that makes me feel like I'm a writer. That doesn't really. Oh, <laughs> uh, I have the same notebook. Like that's so. Yeah, that that's a control thing. Like how can I control all, no. how how loud and chaotic? Yeah, totally. The real thing that I do is uh, one. I have a shower uh, a water resistant notepad stuck on my shower in my shower wall, which uh, a lot of stuff comes from there. And I I write it, pull it off, I bring it in this room, I sit it down. Uh, I transfer. I have some right here. These are shower. These are shower cards. Uh, shower things. Uh, I love that. This one was an idea for how to how to do it. I was like, here's the one way you could do an interview. Like, wh- what did you do before this? What is now this? What's your current thing? What's the problem you're trying to solve? What was the solution? And what's your future plan? I was like, that's a cool idea. Uh, then uh, this one is uh, do a show about uh, uh, the oh do a show about populist movements. Uh, but by talking about how popular the convoy stuff was in the past, uh, blah, 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 register their raid. There's little thing, all these little things, right? So that's one part of my system. But when it comes to this room, this gets put into this, the actual system. So I have um, a pretty well-organized Google Doc thing, Google Drive mm-hmm. and stuff in it. And then the thing that's, that's, that's pretty rich where all my notes go, big Google Drive thing. Because uh, it's cross platforms, cross devices. The other thing I have uh, is it categorized by podcast, book? Like, do you have buckets hmm. like that? It is. It's uh, my categorization system evolves over time. And I, look, I've tried everything. I've tried Airtable and and all those 
uh, organization management tools. I just, yeah. I just don't connect to that stuff well. I'm not sure what it is. If I had a bigger team, I probably would. Uh, but my Google Drive uh, or Google Doc, the Google Docs part of it. Um, let's see if I can. I'll I'll pull it up really quickly and not try to burn any time. Uh, no, no. This I, this stuff is. I don't get to ask these questions always. I'm sure no. you don't get these questions. I mean. This is process, which is cool, really cool, fascinating cool. to a lot of people. Uh, I've got it currently categorized as fiction, lectures, promotion, journalism, defunct projects, studies, books, main space. That's where I do like uh, my checklist of what I'm going, what I do on a, on a weekly, daily basis. Yep. Consulting and freelance notes, television, podcasts, and notability. So notability is the most important thing in my process. I uh, wish I could kiss every person on that development team. I have an iPad Pro. Have notability yeah. on it. I love this thing. I take. I've never even heard of notability. It's the it's the greatest. <laughs> like you, it, it's it's a hand. You know, you write in your natural handwriting, but yeah. you can manipulate that handwriting in every way you can imagine. You can move it, cut, paste, move around, slide things around, and big and then small and uh, different. Every it's like a, a notebook from some cyberpunk movie in the nineties. You can do anything you want with text with it, and then. You can organize that very densely the way that we just mentioned with this organization system, and it will turn anything written into typed text if you want. You could also uh, pull, but the thing I love most about it is I pull PD. I used to, uh, over in the side of the office, I used to have all these legal boxes full of studies. Mm -hmm. I would print out, print out studies, take a red pen, and I had my own sort of uh, shorthand that I would use, and I would circle things and make notes to myself and then try to put them in piles. With notability, it sounds like a, 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 they owe me money uh, for what I'm <laughs> yeah, to say. They're not they, a sponsor. You know, I, I would <laughs> gladly take them as a sponsor. They, I, uh, I just import a PDF. I have all sorts of uh, services where I can get go have the actual uh, literature, the, the scientific documents. I import the PDF. And by the way, if you don't want to do the services, email any scientist that's ever written anything. They'll send you the PDF for free. You don't have to pay for it. Oh, that's great. And uh they want you to email them. Nobody ever talks to them. Nobody ever says you did a great job. They, they do this amazing, <laughs> difficult work for <laughs> yeah. years, and then it sits somewhere in like the Ra the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, and it archive. costs forty five bucks to look at it. Like they want yeah. to send it to you. So yeah. I take those PDFs, I import them. It, it can come from my desktop, my laptop, or wherever, or you can do it on the iPad. Import it into Notability, and then I take it in Notability. I mark it up, and then now I have these all the have all these studies marked up and ready for my perusal whenever I want. And then it's cross-platform. If I want to look at my notability stuff, I can do it here on the desktop. That has been a huge game changer for my process. And it makes researching anything so much better. And I use notability in combination with Google Drive docs and all that stuff. And that's the meat of my stuff. And then all around me are these text notebooks that are just there yeah. to make me feel like I'm a writer. <laughs> yeah, I have a, my whole shelf. You can, you can kind of see it behind me. This right over here is a bunch of constantly. different sizes. Like Leuchtturm is my jam. That I is love my... them. I, I'm a rodeo, I love Rodia here lately. And uh, I, I found this notebook and it's so beautiful. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's even longer. Look, it's a ledger yeah. that, you so can, it, uh, that you can talk about. You can see like, a, like you're running a, a general store in 1850. <laughs> and I, what I do is I fill it up with everything I did today. So I nice. like to, I, I also, I used to keep that as a digital journal, but I find this helps a lot to keep a diary, just a work only diary. So you can kind of refer back to what you've done. Uh, I'll probably go back to digital because it, I can search it and tag it and stuff. Yeah. But that's been incredibly useful to go, oh, I did do that thing or talk to that thing. Or when was I last on this project? So I do keep a work diary. 
and I got the, this was a wonderful gift. This is a space pin. Um, this is the astron- the pin the astronauts use. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I switched to it because, just because of this. Uh, it has the clicker on the side. And for uh, some reason, yeah. when you're finished writing something, it feels good to go. Yeah, I did that. <laughs> I did that. Yeah, exactly. It's like shutting the door at the barn. Like and, you got all the horses yeah. in. And it'll work in space and underwater. Which you know, Yeah. Well, I know you're constantly in space trying to write, <laughs> write ideas. That to was, that point, how that was long? A, that was a gift from my wife. It's one of the best gifts I've ever had. Oh, that's fantastic. How long until you start, or um, maybe you're already starting, your book came out yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the latest book. Um, all the books are really fun. Um, you are not so smart. So funny. You are now less dumb. So funny. So helpful. So kind of sticky counterintuitive thoughts. How long does it take until you're jumped in pretty deep to another book project? I uh, will be submitting the the full proposal for uh, genius or exploring genius, whatever title we come up with for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably next weekend. The uh, I don't know. Uh, when I'll start the process of writing it or doing the, the new research, but I'm going to get the engine rolling for um, my publisher to, to set up everything and set up timelines for me. And once everything is kind of go, when they hit the green light, I'll be going again. So I, uh, I'll be promoting how minds change uh, probably for the rest of my life, but, but, yeah. but for the next year, a lot. And I have a couple of live events in Montreal and Toronto and, um, Los Angeles and New York later in the year, starting like September. And, uh, but I suspect that this by September, I'll be actually working on my next book while I'm also promoting this one. Okay, perfect. Have you ever taken time between them? Like I took too long between two books and got afraid of the book process. Again. Yes. And yes. I was like, and it got really, really hard. Yes. Have you? So now I'm, I'm my, trying to avoid that. Yes. Yeah. I have to stay in motion. Like I can't like I, I have to be like Tom Brady where Same like place. the day after the Super Bowl, I'm throwing footballs because I get afraid of the football. If I wait like a month, I'm like, I don't even know what this thing is. We which are throw. commiserate times a million with you on this. Yeah. I took too long between how uh, between you and Alice Dumb in this book to the point that I was like, it reminded me of that old editor. Uh, there's something you know, I have to you have to look it up, but there's something where like a some journalists wrote to their editor, like at the New York times, like, I'm sorry, I can't deliver this week because I've forgotten how to write. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I, uh, I had done podcasting for so long. Uh, and I did it for years. It was, there's a long gap between the last book and the beginning of this book. And as I was trying to write the, write it, it was coming out in podcast voice and oh, I yeah. did not like it. And I can tell you, this is, this is a, there's a thing I mentioned it in the acknowledgement. The when I did get everything going and it was and I was time to deliver some material. The first thing I sent to my uh, first editor. This book uh, went through a couple of different editors as the editing world shifted as I was working on it. I sent him. His name was Eamon Dolan. He was the first editor on the book, and then uh, and then after that it was Nikki Papadopoulos and Trish Daly. I sent Eamon an email, and it was the first chapter that I was had finished. It was thirty thousand words long. Was a 30, the first was, chapter was because I was in podcast mind and and I was uh, it was thirty thousand words on conspiracy theory stuff. He called me and this never he never called me after seeing an email, and it was so it like no and no adult man has ever done this in my entire life to, with me. He called me and I was like hello, hello, and he answered with, "What are you thinking?" <laughs> <laughs> 
He didn't even say, hey, Wait, you said hello. And he said, what are you thinking? <laughs> yes. And I said, I don't understand. And he said, 30,000 words. Like, I'm an editor. I get it. Do you want me to edit down 30,000 words into a chapter for you? Is that what you want? And because, because if, if you don't, if you're not 30,000 words is for, for a lot of mainstream publications, that's half a book. Uh, oh yeah. My last book was 50,000 words. Yeah. Put that in <laughs> so, and I was like, well, you know, I just thought we'd work on it together. He's like, he's like, you don't let you, you go back to the drawing board. Uh, and I was like, oh, wow, that's bad. <laughs> How do you process that? Cause like everybody's going to get some oh, point, that gut, you know, like that, that, I took that way too hard. That gutted me. That made me, that filled me with a lot of self-doubt, imposter syndrome and all the rest. I, yeah. I, I was, I was like, wow, I may not, I may have bitten off more than I could chew. I may be trying, I may, I may have asked to step into the bigger leagues of writing this kind of book. And, yeah. and they said, well, you just aren't ready for it. Like I, I really felt that at first. And, but I went back to it and I worked, I just worked. I was like, I feel like I can do this. And, and then I delivered, uh, and he, was a lot happier after I worked on it a little bit and tried again. Uh, and along the way, everyone has been very helpful in that regard. I, I learned a lot writing how minds changed about how to write books like this, books that have one continuous arc. Um, my previous material benefited from the fact that the chapters were very self-contained. This book is not like every chapter, every chapter speaks to the next chapter and they all work together for one. Yeah. You pull piece. the thread. Like it's, there's a consistent thread where there's some books where you get the sense that the author's like, you put it together and you're like, how do, how are these things really? And this book doesn't feel like that for a second. There's a consistent it's thread. Very on purpose. Um, it's very on purpose. It stays on message. It all relates. It's a really great tapestry. Um, so yeah, that, that's interesting to hear that. I, the story I've often heard that kind of haunts me with books is a publisher told me, yeah, this author, like we contracted for this topic and they turned in something that was the complete opposite. Like it was a nonfiction and they turned in like a romance novel and just like, <laughs> caught up. and I was like, so whenever I turn something, then there's this part of me that I is like, are they going to be like, what is, what is this? Like there's, this is all about horses. And I'm like, I know <laughs> horses are a metaphor for goals. Like, so I'm always, uh, that's funny. Yeah. I, but, and I, but full disclosure, the, the proposal that I, put forth is not the book that came out. Of oh, there. it never is. No, I know like the proposal is a starting of a conversation and a, and a establishment of trust for me. Like, Oh, they trust that I'm going to do this. I'm going to get, but the proposal, I never end up writing the book. I start out to write like the idea that you'd have an, an outline that you're like, it's day 87 line. of my outline. Now I'm on step. <laughs> like that's never I've ne same here. And it feels good to hear, hear you say that. Like, cause I, um, I wonder are there other people who do that. They write an outline and then the book is the outline. And cause I've, I like that I, I don't know enough. I mean, if I was a neuroscientist and I'm writing about my work, sure. Yeah. But I'm a journalist. I'm going, I'm going out to learn things that I don't know yet and meet people who are going to surprise me. The, it's going to reveal itself in the process. And I trust that process. And I feel like I can, like, uh, I know how to navigate it. So I can't imagine writing a proposal and then handing you the very thing that I thought the book would be like. That seems no, like no, I don't have the answers yet. Yeah. Like I have the questions and I'm going to figure out great answers, mm -hmm. but I don't, yeah, I don't have the answers before, before I start. And maybe it works for fiction. I always dream. Like if I'm ever stuck in a book, I'm like, man, if, I wish this was like a spy novel. And I just had to like, <laughs> 
Yeah. Like, I imagine like people who write spy novels are like, what? This is now you take him to Lucerne and he goes to Switzerland and he jumps on a train. Like <laughs> yeah. this is the train scene, you dummy. Yeah. There's um, a bomb on the train and now, you know, it yeah. goes off in 15 minutes. You got 15, you know, yeah. yeah I, and that's a whole chapter in the next chapter. He meets a girl. Like I sometimes imagine like, and I know it's not that at all. I'm sure that they look at nonfiction and probably say the same thing, just a different version. Yeah. Um, so that, that always, that always cracks me up. So, okay. Two last, uh, two sure. last questions. Um, how, if somebody's listening to this, cause you, you talk a lot about, okay, talking with people that have kind of locked in, um, thoughts mm. or locked in beliefs. If I'm like, eventually it's going to be Thanksgiving. It's not, it feels forever away now, but the summer's going by really quickly. Eventually yeah. it's going to be Thanksgiving and I'm sitting across from an uncle cause it's often an uncle yeah. and they have a hardcore flat earther perspective. Oh, that's They're like, pick. I'm in like, and I'm all in and this is my thing. And like, so I'm sitting there and I'm a niece or nephew and I want to have a good conversation. I don't want to have a fight. Cause like my mom is always already saying like, Hey, don't fight with your uncle. Like, you mm. know what he believes what like in talking with that person. And, and maybe the goal isn't I'm going to change their mind before stuffing. But what is that? What does that look like? Like how, cause yeah. that's a real scenario that a lot of people will really face. Yeah, especially sure. as we get towards midterm elections and there's yeah. going to be another presidential, like we're not done arguing. So right. in all your research, all the knowledge, like how would I approach that? Okay. Um, using flat earth as I, the perspective. I, I like using flat earth too. It's nice and neutral. Um, yeah. The, and I spent in the way in the book, you'll see, I spent time with flat earthers. I, I, uh, I, that's did, why I asked I, it. That's just, fascinating. Which I love. I love flat earthers. It's one of my favorite groups to hang out with. Um, uh, the, as far as for conspiratorial communities. Um, okay. So in the book, I don't even get to the, talking about this kind of stuff till about page 200 because I want you to understand all the underlying science behind it and take you through all the people that I meet who did or didn't change their mind in all these different ways. And so we can understand it. And then, okay, now knowing all that, what works? So without trying to go into all that, I'll go closer to the technique before. I, but I do want you to, to state that these things are based off of how we evolved to interact with one another. Um, we have two systems, basically, one for generating propositions, one for evaluating propositions. And we work best in environments where we're allowed to have biases and present our, our stuff from our biased perspective in a very lazy way and be safe for the other person to evaluate it and we can work together toward goals like the the it's sort of a the muscles in your arm uh can be used to paint a beautiful painting but that's not what they have that's not what the selective pressures that created those muscles weren't painting over the course of millions of years it was the, the same thing is true for the way we can discuss things and argue things and debate things and deliberate it was never about trying to figure out what is and isn't true in a philosophical sense it was about goal setting well, so we could work together as a group toward planning things and and reach consensus so that's the system that you want to lean into if you want to have any kind of useful conversation with someone who disagrees or sees things differently from you and there's ways to leverage all of that i like to think about it in, like if you ever see a movie with um you know your very closest friend and you or this happened to me recently you love the movie and then you get out of the movie and they're like god that was the worst movie i've ever seen and you're like but you don't like go. How dare you? I'm us. You're them. I'll never talk to you again. Yeah. Um, and you don't even get into a fight about it. You playfully are like, uh, I love you. I trust you. We have similar values. This stuff is all there. So why do you? Why is this? And they tell you, and you tell them, and you both move a little bit because of that. Well, you. That's because you aren't facing off in an arena. You went shoulder to shoulder, and you faced the question of, I wonder why we disagree. 
you can reach that, go into that frame with anybody. And if it's an attitude-based thing, it's going to be a little bit different than what I'm going to describe, but that's just because attitudes are evaluations and there's more to it than just straight up, is this or is this not true? Um, the same thing with values, but flat earth is great because we got a pro- we got a claim. The claim is, Hey, the earth ain't round. It's flat. <laughs> so the way you would do this, and this comes from, um, this is the synthesis of a lot of different techniques. Uh, in the book, I talk about deep canvassing and street epistemology and motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioral therapy and elaboration, likelihood model and smart politics. The weird thing is none of these groups have met each other, knew, knew of each other or and some of them that weren't in science domains, didn't know there was underlying science that supported them. But they all pretty much came up with the same thing after A-B testing thousands of conversations. And it all pretty much goes in the same order, which which to me seems like, oh, that means something. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's significant. That seems significant. Um, first thing is to establish rapport. If, if you've had a conflict with this person in the past, you're going to have to get into a place where you're not feeling that feeling of, I don't want to avoid conflict. I don't want to have this conversation because you're remembering it usually goes poorly. You need to start remembering conversations that went well. Uh, the rapport building stage, uh, as frustrating as this is, that might take a minute before you can start up one of these conversations because you need to develop trust with the other person. And the trust usually comes in the, in the framing of, since we're social primates, you, they don't feel like there's a chance that you're going, they're going to get shamed, that they're going to be uh, told that what they think, feel, and believe, they should be ashamed to feel that way, that, they, uh, that there's a danger in them keeping that idea in their head. Uh, that is, and the danger is, ostracism the danger is i'm going to look upon you as lesser than you're going to be a, a them i'm and i'm going to be go back to my us and you're now them forever like we really uh, resist that yeah. um of course we resist it that's death for proto-humans that's that's something we would be yeah, being outside of the tribe don't so if you say anything that could be interpreted that way it may not be your intent and it may not be you don't you may not think to yourself that this is how someone would take that but that's not this is all, all this is about them it's on their mm-hmm. side and I want to emphasize that all of this is about staying on their side. Like you're not, you're, you know, you cannot copy and paste your thoughts, feelings, and beliefs or your reasoning into another person. This is about encouraging the other person to engage in reasoning on their own and explore their own reasoning. So you start with that. And the very next thing you want to do is ask for a specific claim. If it's a fact-based issue, you ask for a very specific claim. In this case, it would be, um, you know, the earth is flat. <laughs> so you'd say, uh, and they may claim something more specific in there about the earth being flat. But whatever it is, it's a very specific claim. And then you take that claim, and this is across all these techniques. You say, okay, you say the earth is flat. How confident are you that that's true? Or what is your level of certainty if we had to put a number on it? You could say zero to 10, one to 100, something in there. And this is where the magic begins because this is how you open up a space for a person to engage in, in introspection and metacognition. Um, they say, maybe they say there are seven. And you could follow that up with either, why does that number feel right to you? I like starting there because mm-hmm. they're, if you could, I swear, do this to anything. Do this today. Anyone listening to this, do this with anything. Like, uh, like uh, what the uh, recently I was the an example that comes to mind is like um, the last uh, the last season of Game of Thrones. What where would you give it on a what rating would you give that on a one to ten? Whatever you say, then I follow it up with why. And it's a different feeling. It's a different thought process than coming up. It's, you know the number immediately. The feeling comes out of you so fast. But then when I ask you to tell me why it came out of you that way. Well, this starts kind of being perplexing. You may, one of the weirdest feelings is, I don't know if I even have thought about why I feel this way. And you start coming up with all these rationalizations and justifications for it. The, the thing I want to illustrate is the feeling is there, the rationalizations and justifications, you're making them up on the spot. 
Uh, it's what seems salient, what seems reasonable, and most importantly, what it seems like other people would consider reasonable. People in your trusted peer group consider reasonable. Things that they would say, no, oh, that seems like a just uh, justification. <laughs> just justification. Um, that's, uh, your position is rational, sir. I say go forth. So you ask for the question of the number. And one of the things you can do, and this comes from motivational interviewing, is you said you're a seven. How come why not a four? Well, that's a different th kind of th thought. Like, well, I didn't say I, I, I didn't say I totally hated it. So I wonder why I feel that way. And when it comes to the flat Earth thing, if they said, "What well, their certainty was at a seven, I mean, ask why is it not an eight? Why is it not a nine? Why aren't you at a ten on this?" And they will produce on their own their own counter arguments, which is something they may not have ever done. They may have never even considered uh, where the why they aren't higher on the number scale, and they will produce internal counter arguments, and then you. You move the conversation in the direction of those counterarguments is one way of doing it. But the way street epistemology does it is you ask for the claim, you get their definitions, you try to make sure you repeat the claim, make sure you really are putting it in words that they agree. You do hear them and that you do have their their proposition, their argument. Like it is truly what they think. It's not your construction of it. Ask for their definitions of certain things. Use only their definitions. Ask for that number. And then somewhere there, you don't have to use this, this tilted of language, but you could say, uh, um, what reasons do you hold to hold that? Uh, would you, what, what is a good reason that you would use as a justification for having that? And that's when those come out. What you want to move it to is this last space, which is how did you determine that was a good reason, which is a really, now that you're really getting deeper into the processing chain. When you ask somebody something about a fact-based claim, like the earth, the flat earth, you want to get them into a space. You're just opening up that space where we're shoulder to shoulder now and we're investigating what method are you using to arrive at the reason that you're using as the justification for your level of confidence. You've re and mm -hmm. The conversation slowly gets to that spot and you just let it play out from there. And people will talk for a while in there and they often will find they'll privately without, without feeling like they're losing face, without feeling like they have to admit anything, they will realize that I may not have done my due diligence on this. <laughs> like that, that uh. often comes out. And you don't have to even illustrate it. You just let the space be there because like, we're just talking about it. And, and it's not a gotcha moment. You let the space no be gotcha. there. Yeah. And, and your help that uh, I've watched lots of their videos and it's really miraculous to see how just having that conversation, just, just holding the space and being uh, sort of a, a help, being a, sort of guiding their metacognition, just being a cheerleader. It feels a lot like mm -hmm. therapy. Um, listen, summarize, repeat, and wish them well at the end. You almost, it's almost impossible to have that kind of a conversation with someone where they don't move a little bit in some direction, either on attitude or on certainty and enough conversations and people can move a good bit. That's the, that's one of the methods from the book that I found. It seems like that's not enough. You know, it's like, that's not enough steps, but it is incredible what one person will do when you give them the space to introspect in that way, because we all, often aren't afforded that kind of space. We just yeah. have, we, we're at the, we, we, the conclusion of that process is where we stay and live in, and we very rarely go back through it. It's the whole reason there is such a thing as therapy. And these processes work really well in helping a person explore their own reasoning and methodologies. And um, no, I, I love that. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really helpful. And there's, there's so much more to that answer. Um, again, you did a great job trying to summarize 200 pages. Of <laughs> you were like, here's the deal. This is page 208 you're asking about. So my last two questions, the first one's really easy. Second one's pretty easy too. Um, what movie were you guys uh, disagreeing about? You and your friend. <laughs> 
Top Gun. He Top liked Gun it. Uh, he didn't like it. You Maverick. liked it. I loved it. I loved it too. I thought I thought it was amazing. It was so so much fun from the opening note. I was like, this is yes. This yeah, felt like I mean, childhood to me. Yeah, I came there for what I got. Like I like I was. It wasn't Shakespeare. It was. Yeah, you weren't gonna question your soul on the way out no. and be like, I got to make some changes in my life. <laughs> Um, other than like yeah. running, I guess in the forest. Yeah, but. I had I had fun, and, and you know, but it was what's interesting in the conversation was the reason I came to see the movie was the was the was what I got out of it. Yeah, but for them, that was their since their expectations were matched, it didn't feel like it was worth even seeing. Like they could have written it their own on their own. And is it possible they hate Kenny Loggins? Did that come up at all? And and once we did the method, we got to Kenny Loggins. <laughs> you pulled it, yeah. He went the, you created a space where he could have mediated Kenny Loggins. And it was like, oh, clearly this is nothing has nothing to do with filmmaking. It's just <laughs> Kenny Loggins. You have a prejudice against the Loggins. You hate the danger zone. <laughs> yeah. Bottom line. Bottom I wanna, line. I want to live in the danger zone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to get on a highway to it. And <laughs> you you took the first exit you saw, and you don't even like the movie now. <laughs> That's so good. That's so good. All right. Last question. Um, where can find, uh, people find out more about you? Website, oh, yeah. book, give, give it to us all. Podcast, you got a lot going on. Sure, sure. The, uh, everything related to my podcast and You Are Not So Smart stuff is at youarenotsosmart.com. The podcast is You Are Not So Smart. Uh, I, anything that I'm not doing that's popped off into these other domains, like How Minds Change and other stuff, uh, the documentary you talked about go to just davidmcraney.com or follow me on twitter at david mcraney and you should find all that stuff there well it was a blast i uh we we definitely went over my a lot of time i said oh i'll get you out of here in 30 or 40 minutes. it was a blast i enjoyed I it. so many good questions so thanks for doing it david have a great week hey thanks so much this is incredible by the way i love your show you, you're an incredible interviewer this has been one of the i best. appreciate that that's fun man thanks dude Thank you so much for listening to my interview with David McRaney today. We'll put all the links in the show notes as always. And thank you for reviewing my podcast. The reviews you write are super encouraging. Please, please, please keep them coming. Thank you for doing that. Make sure you subscribe, like, or follow, or whatever it is the kids are saying these days. And please write a review. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the All It Takes is a Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes is a Goal podcast.